30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard No one meets a wizard by accident. That's what it says on the back of my business card. That's what it said on the sign I sat in front of when I rode the New York City subway, granting wishes. I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before. But the other day, I had a chance encounter that really hit that message home. My brother and his wife were visiting me in Louisville, Kentucky, and we took a walk around my neighborhood, a lovely historic district called Old Louisville. A few blocks from my house, we passed an older gentleman standing next to a van wearing a very cool mushroom shirt. Not just the t-shirt with a mushroom printed on the front, but a painted shirt with mushrooms of every variety wrapping around the entire shirt in a beautiful symphony of color. I said, nice shirt, dude. And he replied cheerfully and said it was painted by an artist in Asheville, North Carolina. And we got to talking for a minute. He couldn't remember the name of the artist off the top of his head, so he gave me his name so I could find him on Facebook and he could message me whenever he remembered. As I started to walk away, he called out after me, Hey, I'm actually in a bit of a jam and could use a little help. Now, I hear phrases like this a lot. Hey man, can I ask you a question? Or, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but... I always stop and listen because I don't want to close my heart to the world and become cold. But 9.5 times out of 10, it's someone asking for a dollar. Or spinning out some nonsense story to then ask for a dollar. So when this man asked for my help, my body tensed and I waited for the inevitable, can I have some money? He started telling me about how he needed a gas can and jumper cables for his van, which sounded like every other story I've heard that leads up to a request for money. But then he surprised me. He pulled out his phone, opened his PayPal account, and said he had money, but no credit card. And he'd PayPal me for the gas can, the gas, the jumper cables, and my time if I could help him out, since he'd been stranded for days and had several other people offer to help, only to run off with his money and never return. I sensed his sincerity and knew he was genuinely asking for help. I told him he didn't need to pay me for my time, and I'd be happy to help as soon as I finished taking my brother and his wife on a quick walk. Twenty minutes later, as we looped back around to this man in his van, I pulled out my phone where I had googled his name, Majo John Madden, and I read the first entry that came up, a LinkedIn page of all things. But Majo's LinkedIn bio was unlike any LinkedIn bio I'd ever read before. And as I read it, I knew that not only was I going to help Majo get his van up and running, but this was a magical connection, and this stranger was going to step into our ritual to tell his story. Let me read you that bio now. This working-class Irish Catholic kid from a blue-collar suburb of Chicago got off to a pretty strong start in his career, with a PhD in clinical psychology, 20 years of clinical practice, 
and then 15 really successful years as an organization development management consultant, four of them at 1970s AT&T, which he describes as one of the last essentially humanistic corporations. Starting in his 40s, having moved from AT&T's hotbed of career development and organization development to a sleepy Midwest power company, he became a psychiatric Rip Van Winkle. Misdiagnosed as bipolar because he was having a spiritual crisis that doctors and therapists did not know how to guide him through, he sleepwalked through the next 30 years of his life in a psychotropic drug-induced coma. In the last two years, life has conspired to wake him up. And oh lord, is he hungry for life. For really his whole adult life, he has focused on storytelling, dance, and saying things to people that wake them up about who they really are. For the last eight months, starting April of the COVID outbreak, his wonder chihuahua Pancho and he have been two outlaw cowboys running the back roads of Appalachia during the pandemic. Read all about this, or more exciting, watch the dozens of videos that he's gradually starting to post at healingvalidations.com. This amazing journey kicked off on June 26, 2019, with a powerful experience of waking up that caused him to wander around asking, what the hell just happened to me? Did I get enlightened? These days, he's dropped all that enlightenment crap. With the Native Americans whose footsteps he's following out in these Appalachian Mountains, he aspires to no more than to become a real human being. He's making some headway at that, but the process clearly is never ending. He no longer claims to do anything to or for anybody, but he's getting pretty good at being. And he pretty consistently finds that when another person and he be together, hang out together on the phone or in person with him not trying to make anything in particular happen, good or even amazing things do happen. Since he's just a retired old guy who after all these years in corporations gets a pretty decent monthly social security check, he works only for tips. When you notice that something he has given you in his writing, his videos, or being together has been helpful to you, you can drop a tip in his PayPal account, some amount that for you fits the value that you got from the experience. So, here and now, let's hang out with Majo John Madden and hear his story in his own words, a tale brought to you by the serendipity of stalled vans and friendly neighborhood wizards. Because Majo John Madden is a man who learned that saying yes to life sometimes means learning how to say no to God on occasion. Majo, welcome to Ritual Space. Hi, thanks. What's so exciting is this, I think, is one of the first face-to-face podcasts I've gotten to do in ages. It's been, since the pandemic started, so many remote calls and things like that. And now we're sitting on my porch. We've met through a beautiful stroke of serendipity. And I can't wait to have a conversation with you. Hmm. Great. I'm excited. What's our magic word going to be? Poncho. Poncho. Wonderful. On the count of three. One, two, three. Poncho. Now, for those who can't see us, Poncho is a chihuahua, right? Mm-hmm. And something else, something larger and something fatter. Something <laughs> larger, something bigger, something more vast than we can even comprehend. And Poncho is sleeping peacefully on my porch right now. And you have Poncho and Poncho have been traveling around 
Appalachia for the last year and a half? March 28th is when we left Asheville, North Carolina. And we stayed with my friend who, uh, who asked me not to mention her name sure. because of privacy. Uh, and we stayed with her for two months in her little walk-in basement apartment mm -hmm. in the mountains outside of Weaverville, North Carolina. And on day one out there, she had said to me, I, I had been homeless on the streets in my little Suzuki mm -hmm. in Asheville for a week and putting it all out on Facebook. And she was following it and she said, get out of Asheville. It's terrible right now. Get away from the COVID. I've got a walk-in basement apartment out here in the mountains. And we went out there and the first day out there, I said, what have I been doing in the city? Mm -hmm. And Pancho and I both started to come alive from yeah. being out in the mountains and the power of nature. That's beautiful. So I want to just, I, I don't even know if start at the beginning is the right way to say it, but I know just a little bit about your journey from reading your LinkedIn profile of all mm -hmm. things. And I know you had a start in psychology and then... 20 years as a psychologist. And then, and then yeah, and then you said that you were kind of living in a medicated haze for a while. I uh, worked for 15 years as a organization development management consultant in large corporations, AT&T and other big places. Yeah. And in my early 40s, I was living in Cincinnati to live closer to my son, mm -hmm. and my life fell apart. Yeah. Uh, living closer to my son did not make me happier. It made me more intensely grieve that he was not living with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I had left a pretty glitzy job with the largest company in the world and the best place probably in the whole world at that time to do my field of organization development. Yeah the human side of business, participative management, helping people speak truth to power, and coaching the managers who actually at AT&T back then were receptive to this mm -hmm. uh, about how to listen to their people. It was very exciting. I needed to get closer to my son while he was in high school and put out the word that I needed to move closer to Louisville, and the closest I got was Cincinnati, which was 100 miles away instead of 300. But saying goodbye to my son twice a week just made me feel worse. And I took a job with a very sleepy power company where it was an awful place to try to do what I was trying to do. They were all about safety and not growth or risk. They don't want to speak truth to power. They want to sell power. <laughs> yeah, well, really, and play it safe. It was play all it safe, about yeah. no, not getting sued for anything. Yeah, and not career development. They had no care for that. I still was extraordinarily successful there, but uh, about a month after my boss's boss said to me, "Madden, everything you touch in this company turns to gold," I got fired anyway because my boss knew that I knew a lot more about that field than he did yeah, and was terribly threatened by me. So I lost my job and it looked like I was going to land on my feet in my mentor David's little consulting firm. But that same boss went to David and said, I know that you've got all your local business really is with our company. Mm. If Madden is in your firm, you won't get any more business with us. 
So my parachute did not open. Yeah. And my sex abuse memories came back. Okay. Uh, quite violently. And so my life fell apart. Uh, there's a line of thinking that this could be when things fall apart is when you have a chance to put them back together in a better way. Mm -hmm. And if you get it, that career really isn't what it's about. And even family, wonderful as that is, is not really what this human life is about, but rather waking up to who you really are. Mm -hmm. If there had been somebody around to help guide me through that process, I could have woken up then, right, 30 years ago. But uh, Stanislas Graf, who is a very famous transpersonal psychologist, mm -hmm. said that what happens in our society is that there aren't genuine spiritual teachers around, so you get taken to the doctors who take you to the psychiatrist who diagnose and prescribe. That's what they do. Big Pharma still is the demon in the background of we a medicate. lot of things. Yeah, yeah, uh, right up to opioids now. And I watched the movie The Fugitive last night, great old movie from my earlier days, and Big Pharma turned out to be the culprit in the background oh, of, of that course. one. Uh, so they, I was in so much pain that when they said, well, we've got a drug that will help you feel better. Mm -hmm. I took it. Yeah. I, I, give me anything. And although my whole career had been opposed to diagnoses, I fought it in grad school and through my whole career. I bought, I said, give me whatever label you have to if it'll help me feel better. But it never did. Yeah. For 30 years, I was semi-comatose with those drugs. It did not have the energy to fight back. And finally, 30 years later, I hit bottom after many hospitalizations mm -hmm. and feeling awful about myself. And there I was, the psychologist, suddenly I was the inpatient yeah. 13, 15 times over the course of 13 years. And I finally gave up uh, back in Asheville, North Carolina, about two years ago came out of the hospital worse than I had gone in and knew that within the next week or two, I would gather the energy to finally kill myself. Yeah. And one morning, my dog was sick, and I was living in a subsidized senior apartment building that I hated, but my friend said, it's safe and secure, stay there, and it was awful for me to live in the middle of all the concrete. I took her for a walk at 3 o'clock in the morning, and standing at the back door of the funky little church I went to in the dead 3 a.m. streets of Asheville, North Carolina, everything shifted. The whole gestalt shifted. Something said, well, you know why the life drained out of you because you've been living wrong. You gave up that job as a cashier in a grocery store that was making you happy because you were making too much money to stay in this high-rise apartment building where you don't want to be anyway. Mm -hmm. So change it. Go back and get that job. Get out of this building and live right. Get your integrity back. And I had written a book called Radical Integrity. Get your wholeness back. 
So from that moment, I got happy and essentially have never been unhappy in the two years since. And so it was a shift, three in the morning. What, what Can you describe, like, how did this feel? Was it just a thought coming up? Was it a feeling? Was it visual? How did, it, how did you experience this? So I don't know what God is, but spirit, life, I call it life, mm-hmm. took over and said, let me show you the way. Yeah. So I just turned it all over, turned it all over. And uh, mostly since then, I almost never have to make a decision because I'm told yeah. what to do, where to put my feet, what to say. I don't rehearse anything. I, it used to be one of the mantras in development, organization development was every meeting needs a design. You have to have it planned. I don't plan anything. Yeah. I don't rehearse anything when I got ready. The, my way of getting ready for this interview was to make my mind a blank slate. And That's when, how I got ready, too. Yeah. yeah. And when you said, come up with a word, I said, don't rehearse it. Don't yeah. think what the word ought to be. So, I've even found sometimes that when you're trying to go blank, there will be something that is popping up that wants to be that rehearsed thing. And then I have to just kind of let that sit there. And then when the moment comes, the first thing I do is I throw that away. Yeah, I'm like, okay, that's gone. Now what's here? And then you just jump into it. Well, the word try is the warning signal for me. Yeah. I really, I cannot, if I try to do anything, I mess things up. Yeah. It's when I respond and go with what I'm being told to do that things fall into place. So, from the, I, I, what do you call? It? We talked a little bit about the word enlightenment earlier, but what do you call this shift that you experience? How do you? Well, frame the first that? thing that helped me with that word was my friend Lee had been reading the book, "The Untethered Soul" by Michael Singer, which mm-hmm. I haven't read. I heard of, listened a, a bit of it in a friend's car, but it sounded way more wordy and intellectual than I wanted to listen to. Yeah. But what Lee said, that guy's definition of enlightenment was unreasonable happiness okay and that's what i had yeah happiness that was not because of anything that had happened it was just the state i was in do you know about um eckhart tolle sure his experience sounds so similar he was like in the depths of despair as he describes it and just sitting there thinking i can't go on like this and then suddenly it was this click and then that's how he describes it of just going and sitting in park benches and just kind of sitting there just beaming with absolute happiness and just and and the way i heard the story was that he actually fell asleep on a park bench i think maybe in central park in new Mm. york or someplace and when he woke up it had all shifted wow and uh who's the woman who does the work with the masculines byron katie same thing happened to her. Yeah, she hit an absolute bottom. She was ready to end it all, and fell asleep and woke up, and it had all shifted. So how did this? Because I think that's um, it's an interesting experience because it's so deeply personal. But then how did this reverberate out into your life? So you you left the senior living home that you weren't happy with. You took a different job, and now you've been traveling around in a van through Appalachia. What has this um, What has this journey been like for you? Uh one of the central organizing themes, Brene Brown mm-hmm. talks about her research, her social science research says that a quality that they label as open-heartedness is the quality that's most connected with happiness mm-hmm. and emotional health. That made total sense to me, and I had been for years just only wanting to open my heart. Yeah. 
The second quality that correlates most with it is solid boundaries. Interesting. And it, it logically makes sense to me that if you know you can protect your boundaries when you need to, then you're free to open your heart. Right. You know that you're safe. So I abbreviate that down to yeses and nos. Good, solid yeses and good, solid nos. And I, who had grown up to be a nice person and a pleaser, uh, was real good at yes, was yeah. real good at appreciating people, real good at being positive. At one point, uh, a mentee called me the master of the positive reframe. So that's a lot of what I do is to help people see the positive, especially in themselves. But it's got to be in dialectic with your nose. you got to get really good at nose. And I have kind of astonished people at the way I've leaned into nose. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Diana, my favorite housemate at the building there, uh, was creeped out by some guy that she thought was uh, stalking her. Mm -hmm. And she has a tendency to paranoia, and I thought it was paranoia. I was out in front of the building smoking with her, and she pulls her hat down over her face, and I went, shit, something's going on. And I looked around, looked around, and there was a guy across the street videotaping us. Whoa. And in seconds, I was on the curb screaming at this guy. Yeah. Who the fuck are you? Get the fuck out of here. And I came back and I said, well, Diana, uh, maybe we ought to call the cops. And our friend standing there said, don't bother. He's long gone. I think he has left the county. Because <laughs> I threw the fear of God into him. Yeah. And I've become able to do that without trying. Something will come through. Uh, the old, uh, what is the... The Hulk in the Hulk show before the mild-mannered doctor would turn into the right, Hulk. Right, yeah, Dr. Bruce Banner when he gets angry. Don't make me angry. Don't you make me like. angry. Yeah. So, really, I want to say, I have, I have said to people, yeah. do not make me angry because you would not like me. Stuff I'm capable when I'm angry, a force comes through me that can be quite terrifying <laughs> to people. And this is really interesting because I think... The common idea of enlightenment or spiritual awakening is somebody who's like the Dalai Lama. And it's or just Thich Nhat Hanh, my teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, just a big smile and it's just all like, you know, perfect calm in any situation. So the idea of talking about anger in this way is really fascinating. To uh, well, me. and I trained as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I did not like psychoanalysis, but Freud was onto something about the taboos sexuality and aggression mm -hmm. are the sources of tremendous potential power that we don't know how to tap because we're trying to be nice people. Right. And you have to be willing to not look nice. And for a long time, I had already been saying to people, those who know me well do not call me a nice person because even though I'm nice most of the time, they know yeah. that I can be the truth teller. I can be the prophet voice. Yeah. I can be the one saying, as Fritz Perls, one of my men, we had Carl Rogers was the yes man, the guy who, yes, bring it forward. I'm listening. I'm with you. And Fritz Perls was the one who would say, bullshit, you are not telling the truth. And I literally said to a guy at church who was plotting to get my wonderful new minister fired, I asked him, 
kind of innocently, how's it going for you with her? And he gave me a whole line of shit. And I listened for about a minute and said to this guy who had, we, we had collaborated on poetry. I never had liked him an awful lot, but we had done all this stuff together. And he was very highly thought of. And I said to him, so far, you haven't said anything that's true. Can you tell me anything that's real? And he basically ran. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very interesting point. You know, it, what you just described made me think of Jesus is another character that everyone thinks of as just love and light and happiness. But a lot of the, the Bible stories are about him flipping over tables and, and having that kind of righteous anger. And so I'm curious... Um, with this experience, was it a switch that flipped and it's been consistent since? Or did it have like, has it faded and ebbed and come back? Or how does... It, how? Uh, it had seeds. I, looking back over my life since my early 20s, right. there have been moments that I was the truth teller. Yeah. The priest when I was uh, studying death of God theology in college, who I was always the one saying, no, I don't buy it. He followed me out into the hall after my final exam and said, John, tell me, do you not now finally accept the proofs for the existence of God? And I looked at him and I said, no, (laughs) not at all. And my friend Madeline from grad school, I saw her 10 years later and I said, well, you know, Madeline, us guys always, all of us had a crush on you. And she says, yeah, I knew that, but I didn't feel good about myself, and so I couldn't accept it except for you. Because <laughs> you were the guy who would call the shit in the room. Right. Even if it was the faculty who had all the power, the guy who was trying to teach us about altered states of consciousness through yeah. the music of, who's, I don't know, some terrible person who just did really popularized music. Yeah. And as he had us, laying on the floor trying to induce an altered state of consciousness through this ridiculous music, I was the one who said, I'm not doing this. Yeah, this, You're missing the boat. You are not the person to teach us this. We know a lot more about altered states than you do. How do you think those two ideas fit together that you brought up earlier of like open-mindedness and boundaries? How do you, I guess... It seems easy to overthink of, oh, am I putting up a boundary when I should have my, 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 my heart open or am I opening my heart too much and I should have had a boundary there? How do you, how do you navigate that? Well, I don't think about it. Yeah. I, mean, I mostly don't think anymore. Yeah. I don't think and I don't do. Uh, and a voice will tell me or the instinct. It's, you know, it's like what comes forward from within me? What's the natu- most natural response and 80 to 90% of the time, it's to encourage people. It's to say, yeah, be their cheerleader. Look how fabulous you are. And, uh, and ranging from, it can be small children. Like and in the park last night, this three-year-old or two-year-old was standing on a table and she was so radiant and alive. And I looked at her parents who were so proud of her and said, she's magnificent. What are you doing to keep her so magnificent? So I affirmed her and In them. them. Mm-hmm. So eighty to ninety percent of the time it's that, yeah. but then some something like ten percent of the time, what comes through is to say, "Do you see how lost you are?" And I do it as gently as I can, but it doesn't always feel gentle at sure. all, because I'm basically grabbing them by the collar and shaking them and saying, "Wake 
up. Louisville is one of the few places in the country, I think, where planes fly right over the downtown. I'm so yes. I was well. I was like, I was actually really just enjoying taking that moment to listen to the sound of the plane, which I, I don't, I'm not going to edit out, and take a moment to kind of just enjoy it. And yeah, it's interesting because we're sitting on my porch here in Louisville, and we have both an airport, like an international airport, and UPS has a major hub. Uh, and so there's a lot of flight traffic down yeah. here, which is funny because in New York, you would have, you'd be walking down the street and there'd be the elevated trains and you'd have to go, hold on, and just wait for the train to go past and then continue your conversation. And it gives you a chance to stop. My old teacher, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, would say, just stop yeah. as you're walking across the room. In the middle of the room, just stop, break the momentum, and then let something new come up. And I like the sounds. When we first went to the country, I had this dichotomy of the good nature sounds, the mm -hmm. crickets and the mountain streams, uh, that would take me back to oneness. And then, like, why do you have to crank up your motorcycle in the middle of this? And what I got after a while was... The man-made sounds were the baseline, mm -hmm. and the natural sounds were the treble. And I, at one point, I was part of science of spirituality, where you're supposed to listen to the sound, the spiritual sound. And what I got was that the way to get enlightened or whatever through sounds is not to judge any sound. Right. Let the mechanical sounds be just a part of it. Don't resist any of it. And the meditation on light or vision for me is don't judge anything you see. Well, there, there's two thoughts that come to mind. One is thinking what comes after humans and how might they feel nostalgic for the sounds that we have now, hmm. you know, thinking hmm. of some sort of digital hmm. computer consciousness. And it's thinking, oh, wow, to hear, you know, the traffic of a city or planes taking off, like that would be as interesting and fascinating as we feel when we go out and listen to birds tweeting as the sun rises and trying to just appreciate that this idea that there's a natural world and then there's a human made world that is not natural. I think that's a very fuzzy boundary. And well, and, and I more and more the dualities do fall apart for me. Yeah. After we had spent many months up in the mountains the sounds of the city and the lights of the city were very disturbing to mm -hmm. us, very disturbing. And I realized that the reason Appalachian people don't like Asheville is not so much because of the gays or the hippies. It's because of the cityness of it, the, yeah. the intensity and the speed. But after initially going through, like, I have to stay away from the downtown and I have to mm -hmm. stay away from expressways, my brain process has slowed down so much that I like expressways now Yeah. because I know what the other cars are going to do. I know it before they do it, and I can see the spaces open up. And at this point, I can drive my 6,000-pound van fast on expressways, and it just makes me happy. It's a beautiful ballet with everybody, invisible lines. 
There, there, there's paint on the ground and we all have decided that you shouldn't drive over that paint in certain ways and we're all able to operate these hulking machines flying at unfathomable speeds and there are accidents but I am always shocked that there's not constant accidents mm-hmm. I, every time I'm on a highway mm-hmm. I just think this is amazing that we're able to do this that we have trust in other we, I, I think cars dehumanize us because you can't see another person's face it's not Oh, that elderly gentleman, or oh, that young girl, it's the blue Honda or the red mm. Ford truck. And, you know, you, you can't tell who's who's in it aside from their bumper stickers, perhaps. But it's this amazing faith that we all have of we're going to get in and we're going to play this game. That's what it is. It's a game with a set of rules that we've learned. And it's life or death consequences. And we're trusting our fellow strangers on the highway to play the game the right way and to abide by the rules and uh up in appalachia people are super polite in the way they drive interesting and and they are country people are don't need meditation because they are in the present moment survival is tends to be an issue they tend to be alone a lot yeah and they pay attention to everything i never had to worry about people in their huge pickup trucks running over my little black dog. Right. Because they'd say, well, I saw her 100 yards back. Yeah. Less so in the city. People are less mindful. They are more tweeting, more thinking. So I have to watch them a lot more carefully. And when I first came into Louisville, people drive much more aggressively around Louisville than oh, yeah. even in Cincinnati, which I visited. Oh, it's, it's, it's wild here. We're constantly just sitting at a light and we're like, oh, I guess that person decided to take a left on red. I didn't know that was a... Uh, a thing that you could do. And not only now do I find it humorous when I see people doing that stuff. I'm like, wow, look what he just did. What yeah. a cowboy he is. Yeah. But I'm it too. <laughs> I'm it too. And I say to God, okay, you take over the steering wheel. Don't let me do anything rash. Warn me when yeah. I should not blow off this red light. Yeah. And mostly I stop at red lights, but it's more like, pay attention, what's there, what's there, okay, now let's go, you know, I'll say, no, no, oh, okay, yes, let's go. Well, there's two things that I think are happening, like, one is the, I don't want to call it reality, because I think they're both real, but one is the physical world where you have what is happening around you, what are the sights, sounds, signals that you're getting from your surroundings, and then the other is the game we've overlaid on top, where green means go, and you can have people where they're so obsessed with the game that they ignore the physical reality. And so green means go. And I pull out without looking to see that that other car was barreling down. And, or a pedestrian is or walking pedestrian, across the street looking I'm, at their phone. I'm playing the game. I didn't I yeah. didn't look around. I think it's, yeah. It's, or sit, sitting at a red light for no reason. Like, uh, I am a big rule breaker. Yeah. Big rule breaker. And I have continual conversations with friends uh, in the police trade who are all about rules. And I I get it that there's a value and we got to have people who are minding the rules and minding the details. And I've got to integrate that myself. I've got to learn better and better how to mind details. But the constant pull for me is back to oneness. And I have to say no to God. Mm -hmm. I have to say, no, God, no. I, okay, I've been totally immersed in oneness for two hours, yeah. and now, God damn it, God, I've got shit to do here, okay? Would you shut up for a while? I think I probably talked about it on the podcast before, but 
there when I first started getting into magic, I would feel this thing that was like a pull. Like I would be walking down the street and I would just be like, oh, I'm supposed to turn here. And I would go and walk down the street. And of course, in my head, I want it to be like a TV show where I'm going to walk down the alley and I'm going to find the magic object under a pile of rags. But Sometimes it was interesting. Sometimes it took me on a route that I was like, okay, that was that was kind of cool. Or, oh, there was a detail I missed that I should go back and pay attention to. But other times I'd be like, this pulled me here. And then at the street corner, it seemed like I didn't really know where to go. And then it took me this other way. And eventually I'm like, all right, whatever this force or intuition is, it has no idea what it wants. And I got to go get some food and go get some work done. So, like, bug off. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got to take the wheel back. Because you do have to get things done. Yeah. And that's a funny dialectic there where I want to embrace everything and not judge things, but there's shit that needs to be stopped in this world. Yeah. And people who try to transcend uh, racial uh, oppression, systemic racial oppression, no, we're not meant to transcend that. That's a place where we, and we, praise God, lots of people in the last year have learned to say no. No, it's not okay. You cannot do that on my watch. Yes. That that's not just a, you know, I th- what do they call it now? Spiritual bypassing, where you mm-hmm, use all mm-hmm, of that language mm-hmm. and you're just, you know, well, it's the law of attraction. Nope. It's, uh, it's the law of economics and years and decades and centuries of systematic oppression that have attracted wealth to certain populations and taken it from other ones. And yeah, I and- think you've got to be able to see through that bullshit, which is... We talked earlier about how you call yourself a mystic and I call myself a wizard. And I think I, I, I realized early on I didn't like the word guru. I, I didn't want to be a guru. I wanted to be the guy in the back calling bullshit on the, on the fake gurus. I wanted to be the person that's able to, like you said, say no. <laughs> and my teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is mostly known for mindfulness, mm-hmm. and I love being in his presence. I got to be in his presence for weeks at a time. Yeah. Uh, but he was the same order of monks that in Vietnam fought the Vietnam War that right. immolated themselves yeah. in the town square. And I went to a talk of his where the first hour was just the standard, what I knew really well about mindfulness. And then he shifted, he downshifted and said, by the way, folks, they're trying to crank up towards this Iraq war. Yeah, We have to take to the streets. Yep. Man the barricades. Say no. Get your bodies in the way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things with like reading Taoism where it's talking half about going with the flow and not doing all of these things. And then the other half, it's talking about how states should run and also how states that are corrupted look. And I'm thinking, well, when you're in a corrupted state, what is is not doing seems actually like it's doing a lot because you have to go against the flow in this way. You can't just say, oh, I'll just go work the job and punch the ticket and get the grocery and, and do all of the regular things. You've got to say, no, but this isn't the flow. This is – the whole context is, is actually out of alignment here. And, and the personal flow may be the voice for God in you saying, yeah. now you get in the way. This is a moment to call the bullshit. And – We've been exposed to a minister here in uh, Louisville, a guy named Derek Penwell, who said recently, Jesus pissed off 80% of the people. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, okay, well, I'm right on track. Because <laughs> 80% of the people who used to find me fine yeah. no longer can tolerate my level of truth-telling. Yeah. Now, I want to take us into the home stretch here. And there was something that you talked about earlier about 
trying to wake people up. And I'm curious, how do you, like when you find someone who you're telling them, hey, you're lost, how do you, like 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 we said earlier, you, you can't push an agenda on people, but how do you think you can help people wake up? And what do you do when you encounter these people? Well, there's no recipe and I can't plan it. It really is in that moment what life is coaching me to do and it has been as simple as just to look at someone like they're crazy Mm -hmm. you know just not respond uh i punched a guy in the face wow yeah yeah he had insulted my friend eric homeless black musician that i had taken in off the streets Mm -hmm. brilliant guy and he picked a fight with eric by calling him boy and Eric needed not to go to jail. Yep. He had a big gig that weekend. Uh, he's got some trauma himself from having been a fighter because he's yeah. quite a strong guy. And Eric came up to my apartment just shaking like a leaf because uh, another black guy had headed off the physical encounter. Right. And Eric came back and I said, okay, we'll, we'll do something. I don't, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, and finally, <laughs> what came out of me was, I got it. <laughs> And Eric says, yeah, great. What are we going to do? And Eric's like six foot four. Yeah. And I'm like 5'10 yeah. and skinny psychologist. Yeah. 74-year-old guy psychologist. And I said, uh, I'm going to beat him up. <laughs> and I did. And Eric says, we both laughed hysterically. And Eric said, when was the last time you did that? Yeah. And I said, well, not in this lifetime, but I got a good feeling about it. <laughs> and I did. I got super happy. And I planned the whole thing. I found out what he was driving and when he was going to get home from work. And I laid in wait for him in the parking lot. And when he pulled in the parking lot was the only time that for a moment I got scared. Yeah. Because I hadn't had a fight. I had been not a fighter ever. And I remembered something I knew from performing poetry was anxiety plus breath equals excitement. So I took a good deep Mm -hmm. breath and got excited again and stalked him in the parking lot. It was a cold February day, and as I'm walking towards him, he saw me coming towards him. I peeled off my jacket and threw it aside, <laughs> peeled off my vest and threw it aside, took off my glasses, threw yeah. them aside, and just waited for him. And one of the high moments was he's trying to get by me, and I say, Alan, it's, this is before George Floyd. Yeah. I said, Alan, it's 2020, Alan. You can't pull that shit anymore. And... When the cops took my statement afterwards, yeah. I said, it was, you know, it was a bullshit fight. Two fat old seven-year-olds, he was actually 60, and nobody landed a punch, nobody went down, nothing happened, and the cop says, well, he says you hit him. Yeah. And I said, really? <laughs> and she says, don't get happy, he's pressing charges, and he's got a red mark on his forehead. And I said, yes, <laughs> yes, I did it, I landed one. <laughs> and because I knew that then Eric wouldn't need to. Eric was watching the whole thing, and, yeah. and he might have felt the need to finish the job. Yeah. But as long as I landed one, it was okay, and he always felt fine. He didn't yeah. have a need to do anything. And on the way down to the station house, the cop says, and these, this is Asheville cops and yeah. women cops, yeah. and one of them says, so let me get this straight. You punched that guy so that your black friend wouldn't have to because you thought the justice system would go easier on you. And I said, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and she says, 
awesome. Good work. <laughs> she says, nobody's going to hold you for that in this town. Yeah. But, you know, among my liberal, progressive, pacifist friends, yeah. I got things like, you men and your testosterone. Yeah. And one the thing I said to her was, well, actually, us men do have testosterone, and we tend, tend, there are women fighters. I know yeah. women fighters, but we tend to have a different relationship to physical aggression, and it actually was incredibly liberating to me yeah. to take a stand and to not let fear back me down. The next day, I was driving down the road, and I went, yes, I'm a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> and someone else said, uh, I hope you got that out of your system. And my response several times has been, I think the next time will be easier. Yeah. <laughs> and there hasn't been a second time, but mostly because guys who would have picked a, start tried to pick a fight with me yeah. encountered a force for me where they said, something's up with this guy. Yeah. Yeah, he either knows martial arts or he's crazy and he's dangerous because yeah. they always back down. So what, is, what is the James Brown quote? I don't know karate, but I know crazy. Oh, great. Great. All right. We're, we're, we're now at this point where I'm – I hope it's not go punch someone in the face. I like that story, but I hope it's not go punch someone in the face. But it's time to come up with our spell. So all the people that are listening to this, that you are, your wisdom is transmitting through this microphone, through the – they're not even airwaves. They're like the, the cables of the internet out into speakers and hearts and minds and iPhones. What's our spell going to be? What, what can we do to make the world a slightly better place? I was telling you about Nako and the medicine people. Mm -hmm. he, he says we are guardians. There's a chant he does in the middle of one of the songs, we are guardians, be a guardian of the people. And I have said to parents who are abusing their kids and said, this is my business. And I've said, it's my business because I'm a guardian of all children. Mm -hmm. And I say it to people when they're even slightly abusing their dogs. Yeah. I say, you don't own that dog. And you are not going to hurt that dog when I'm around. Yeah. So it's for me, it's to be a guardian of life, of all of life. I like the idea too of you know, the, if, if, if for the listeners, you can you can be a guardian of all life. But I like the idea of also picking a specific thing, of telling yourself, "I am the guardian of this," and that way you know when that situation comes up that you have dedicated that role and you are the guardian who's going to protect and pick up that litter when you see it or the guardian that when you see somebody abusing a dog or someone yelling at their kids or somebody, you know, being a creep, you could say, I am the guardian of, of, you know, positive sexuality. And when I see someone being a creep, that's, that's my cue that, all right, you know, it's like the bat signal in the sky, time to step up and be the guardian. Perfect. Yeah. I'm with that. Maja, thank you for being on this ritual. Thanks, buddy. For more of Majo John Madden's magic, visit healingvalidations.com. And if you're feeling generous, you can send Majo a tip to help keep him and Poncho on the road by PayPaling heymajo at iCloud.com. And while this is where I'd normally plug my own Patreon, I'm going to skip it and just say it was really awesome meeting Majo and he was so excited to connect with our ritual. If a little wizard gold flowed to him from everyone who tuned into this episode with a note saying, heard you on this podcast as a ritual, you know, I think that would be really special. And besides, my own Patreon is doing great because we just crossed the 420 gate, which is a very exciting landmark 
and it means we'll now be doing seasonal magic ceremonies for all our patrons. So if you're curious to learn more about what that means, you can visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. But again, please throw a few bucks at Majo before you throw anything at me. Until next time, keep your eyes peeled for wandering wizards in need. You never know where we might be. Thank you.